Okay. Well, <clears throat> I'm an enrolled member of the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe. Um, my mom is a member of the Oglala Sioux Tribe, so I grew up on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. That's Sadie in the woods. She's 30 years old, a mother, Native American, and a force to be reckoned with. A public health professional serving Native communities, Sadie secured millions of dollars in grant funding to help them. She lives for Native people, and she's great at what she does. Whatever they've been through, she's probably been through it too. But in some ways, she shouldn't be here at all. I contemplated committing suicide at a really young age, at 11. I had actually attempted to hang myself. And what I had used to hang myself broke. And when it broke, I fell to the ground and I got hurt pretty bad and I couldn't get back up. And I got up off of the ground and I went to watch TV and I turned on the television and there was a Duke basketball game on. And I just kind of got lost in the game and I could see how excited the students were and the camera, like the students were jumping so hard that the camera was shaking. And I thought, man, if I could be a part of that, if I could have a piece of that, that would make me feel really good. How do I get to that? How do I get to a place like that? I'm Gotham Chopra from Religion of Sports. This is Why Sports Matter. You're representing your people. So when you walk out on that court, you keep that and you remember that and you act with respect. It was the most truly blessing moment I could ever experience. That's something that lights their fire because, of course, that's what makes life worth living. I had to shoot for the moon on that one and I had to leave it all out there. It helped me become a better person. It also unified us as people. In this episode, we explore resilience through young leaders in the Native American community and how they've used basketball to overcome immense adversity and build better lives for themselves, their communities, and future generations. Sadie in the Woods was 11 years old the day she tried to kill herself. For a long time, for many years, I was very angry. I was very upset. The first day I moved to the Pine Ridge Reservation, I got beat up. <laughs> I got punched in the nose the very first day because I was new and because I, I didn't really know a lot of my relatives or, or I just didn't have somebody to protect me, I guess, from bullies. I went through some really early hardship and a lot of abuse and there was a lot of issues with addiction in my home. Her mother, Marla, struggled to make ends meet. My mom was a single mother. She's been a teacher for about 30 years now, and she had to work a lot. Teachers aren't paid very well, so we didn't always have a whole lot of food. And her father, Byron in the Woods, was battling demons most of his life. My father, he was a big-time basketball player, but he also had his issues with addiction and alcoholism and um, was in and out of prison growing up. It's, like, so common on the reservation Sadie's childhood hardships might sound extreme, but they reflect common challenges faced by Native youth growing up on reservations, where data shows that suicide, addiction, and other mental health problems occur at far higher rates than in other American populations. Indian people who live on reservations are susceptible to kinds and uh, rates of violence that exceed most other Americans. 
That's Dr. Joseph Gaughan, a psychologist and professor of global health and social medicine at Harvard Medical School. I'm a member of the Grovant Tribal Nation, Fort Belknap Reservation in north central Montana. And I specialize in the intersection of culture and mental health issues in American Indian communities. We asked Dr. Gaughan about the root causes of the many challenges that face Native communities today, which led us to a discussion of quote-unquote historical trauma. When Indian people in our communities use the term historical trauma, they're talking about the legacy of colonization by Europeans that persists to this day in our communities in terms of a whole wide array of social problems. America represents a terrific paradox. On the one hand, it aspires to amazing ideals, ideals that were distinctive at the time in history when America was born. Um, But at the same time, it fails in so many ways to live up to those ideals. In fact, we might observe that America is built on stolen African labor and stolen Indian land. And so the erasure of Indian people was necessary for territorial expansion and the United States to become what it was. And that legacy of erasure persists to this day to the point where most everyday Americans never encounter living Indian people. So a different paradox is that we're simultaneously everywhere and nowhere. Everywhere in the sense of representations, place names, pictures, mascots, cartoons, and nowhere in the sense that very few Americans have ever even met uh, a native tribal member from, you know, a current community that struggles or thrives today. However, Dr. Gaughan doesn't think that theory of historical trauma is sufficient on its own to understand the issues facing native communities today or to determine how best to move forward in addressing those issues. There's nothing wrong with telling the truth about the past and That truth will include a lot of hard, horrible things. But the emphasis doesn't have to be how hard and horrible it was. The emphasis can be on how we survived and overcame and somehow, some way, are alive today to look forward to what life could be like for our children and grandchildren. We want to uh, recognize and, and celebrate resilience, resistance, and what the Ojibwe intellectual Gerald Visner refers to as survivance. Survivance is really a novel word that's a coin, coining of uh, survival and resilience. And it's meant to capture the distinctive aspects of those terms that Native people have expressed, despite all odds, to eliminate us. Few embody survivance more than Sadie in the woods. At 11 years old, Sadie was getting beaten up regularly. Her mother was stretched thin, trying to make ends meet. And with her father in prison, her mother's boyfriend entered the picture. My mom's boyfriend, he was a predator. He physically and sexually abused Sadie, terrorizing her and her family. But even at that young age, Sadie had the courage to go to the police. After he sexually abused me, he went to jail. Um, And it was really difficult to speak up. You know, his relatives bullied me, wrote things on the playground about me, and he accused me of being a liar, and, and, and it was really traumatic, and it was scary as a little kid, but I don't know what it was just inside of me. I just got this loud voice in my in, from deep down to just stand up for myself, and I, I stood up to him, and I, and I made sure that he went to jail, and my mother helped him, put him in jail, and, and any time I saw him after that, I would... I would fight him or I'd try to fight him. I just, I didn't want to even see him. 
Sadie was barely in sixth grade, and she was feeling completely hopeless. I contemplated committing suicide at a really young age, at 11. I had actually attempted to hang myself. And what I had used to hang myself broke. And when it broke, I fell to the ground. And it's kind of funny, I think about it, I was brought to my knees. Um, Literally, I fell down on my knees and I got hurt pretty bad and I couldn't get back up. And I thought to myself, you know, like, I can't even do this right. I got up off of the ground and I went to watch TV and I turned on the television and there was a Duke basketball game on. And I just kind of got lost in the game and I could see how excited the students were and the camera, like the the students were jumping so hard that the camera was shaking. And I thought, man, if I could be a part of that, if I could have a piece of that, that would make me feel really good. How do I get to that? How do I get to a place like that? But after her suicide attempt, after seeing that Duke game on television, it had a transformative effect on her, like some sort of divine message. In that moment, I gave myself to the higher power. I gave my life and I called out. And and from just a deep down place in my heart, because I wanted to get away from the reservation or at least that life um, that I was exposed to. Before that moment, Sadie had tried playing basketball, but she wasn't very good at it. In fifth grade, I made four points that whole entire season. I shot it twice, and I made both of them, and that was it. But when I had that life-changing experience in that next year, I started playing every single day, and I and I ended up making um, 92 points the whole entire season. And it was because I was at the courts for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and after school. And even when it snowed or it rained, we were there. This elder in my community, an elderly woman, came up to me and and our team in a in one of our practices and said, "When you go out there, you remember that you're not only representing yourself." You're representing your family, you're representing your community, you're representing your school, and you're representing your people. So when you walk out on that court, you keep that and you remember that and you act with respect. And you remember where you came from and you remember what your ancestors did so that you can be here today and so that you can play basketball. As she improved her basketball game, Sadie also tried to figure out what she had to do to make it into Duke. The way that my teacher explained it to me early on was kind of blunt, but I remember hearing that if I get a 4.0, if I get high grades, if I get funding for school, if I work hard, then I can do it. I started to really commit myself and dedicate myself and, and live a life that I thought would take me there, which was being drug and alcohol free, staying in school, doing whatever I could to win my teachers over. I was a leader in our school. I was like the captain of a few teams, volleyball, basketball. I was student council president. I was the prom queen. There were a lot of people who were watching me. Even as Sadie was thriving in school and on the court, many members of her tribe actually discouraged her from pursuing her dreams. In many poverty-stricken communities, there's this type of lateral violence. It's kind of like crabs in a bucket. You see one trying to get out and you pull them down. You know, maybe it's like people are just so severely depressed or unhappy with themselves that they kind of spill their toxicity onto other people. 
In our Lakota language, we call it nawizi, to be jealous. I experienced that so much, even from relatives. There were a lot of people who told me, oh, you think you're too good, you think you're better than everybody, you think you know better, you act white, and stuff like that. No, you shouldn't apply to Duke, you won't make it, you're just a little girl from the res. Like, who are you? You're just a little res girl from Pine Ridge. But Sadie was able to drown it all out and just stay focused on her goal. She would get into Duke. Luckily, I I didn't understand why I couldn't. And I had to learn how to fight. And I knew I could read. I knew I could study harder. I knew I could get an A. I thought, why not me? Basketball increasingly became a way to release her pain and anger. A way to ground her life especially as she saw friends' lives ruined by addiction. There's just a lot of dysfunction that comes with high rates of addiction. I lost a lot of friends along the way to suicide, to car accidents, from drinking and driving. A lot of my classmates were pregnant at a really young age, even at 12. I think the only thing that separated me from them, I mean, of course, was my mother, but also that I knew that if I got pregnant or I knew if I drank, if I smoked cigarettes, I wouldn't be as a very good basketball player that I wanted to be. And that was my main focus. In high school, she became good enough to make a team that went to the Native American Basketball Invitational in Phoenix, an annual all-star event known as NABI. It's a national tournament. And for Native American boys and girls, it's a big deal. It's not just high school teams. It's teams um, put together from several different high schools even sometimes several different tribes or just one tribe bringing their best. On our reservation back then, you and even now, you know who the best basketball players are because they have a Nobby jersey. Nike sponsors the jersey, so you get to take it after the tournament. We saved up. We, we did bake sales. We did raffles, bingos, pancake dinners. Whatever it took to save up to, to get a van that didn't have any AC in it and drive all the way down to Phoenix from South Dakota, which is, I think, about a 24-hour drive. And Sadie's team made it all the way to the championship game. And in the championship, you get to play in the Talking Stick Resort, which is where the Phoenix Suns and the Phoenix Mercury play. And we were so excited. I remember we were getting ready for our game, and Lisa Leslie was back there, and she gave me a head nod. And I was like, oh my God, like I'm really a person. (laughs) It meant so much to me that she just even acknowledged me with that little head nod. I felt like, man, like I really am a basketball player. I really am somebody. I don't know why that, that made me feel like that, but it did. And it gave me so much energy to come out and play my best. As the game went down to the wire, Sadie played like a star. We were tied up at the end of the game. And there was one minute left, and they had the ball. One of their best players goes up, and I knew she was going to shoot it, so I just followed her, and I blocked her shot really hard out out of bounds. They get the ball back. They do some plays, and I block another girl's shot. And in the last few seconds, they get the ball. They take it out, and another girl throws it up, and it just bounces around the rim, and it goes in. And we lost, and it was just devastating. And my whole team was on the side crying and this woman walks up to me the woman handed her a signed basketball jersey she was like 
Diana wants you to have this. She said that you're a really good ball player and to keep it up. And she really enjoyed watching you play. And I thought, like, Diana who? And she points over in the crowd and she said, Diana Tarasi, she's sitting right there. She watched your game. And I, and I just jumped up like, what? Oh, my God. You know, she was my hero. And for her to come and say that I was a good player, I thought that was better than any award I ever received in basketball. I thought that was it. She lit a spark in me. And I thought, you know, if she thinks I'm good, then hey, maybe I really am good enough to go play. Maybe I, I don't have to be scared. I should submit my application. And I should put it all out there and try for Duke. What do I have to lose? So I didn't apply to any other colleges. Duke was it. I had to shoot for the moon on that one, and I had to leave it all out there. And I'm so glad that I did. She shot for the moon. And that spring, she found out that she got accepted to Duke. That first semester at college, however, she discovered that achieving her dream of making it into Duke meant facing major new challenges. When I went to Duke that first year, it was so extremely hard. The culture shock was so much. I started to have a lot of thoughts of doubt. And I thought, man, there's just no way I could graduate from a place like this. Even when Native Americans are able to leave the reservation for college or anything else, they often struggle and many end up returning home. But in those times of doubt, Sadie drew on her experience playing basketball and the lessons the game had taught her. A lot of those teachings as a young kid playing basketball stuck with me. I remember that woman saying, I represent more than myself. I represent more than my family. It wasn't just me graduating. If I failed out, I would be another negative statistic. But if I graduated, there was a chance that someone else from where I was from could see hope that they could go after their dreams or they could graduate from a school like that or that they could do it. And I had opportunities to go play for other colleges in my sophomore year, but I chose to, for that reason, to stick it out. She graduated, but she wasn't done then. Next, she went for her master's. I studied public health at Florida International University and learned about, you know, a lot of ways that I could help improve the life of my people at home and things that were going on throughout the world. I graduated with my master's from public health and I got an internship and went back home. And in my first year of, I started grant writing. It just fell into my lap and it was just about telling a story and, and telling your plans on what to do with funding. In my first year, I made $6 million and helped 17 tribes with tobacco prevention. And I think about, you know, man, there's so many other kids that do complete suicide or that talk about it. If only they could find that power in themselves to do what they want to do, to do something that makes them happy. Our reservation would be a beautiful place again. Sadie in the Woods has already come so far, overcome so much, and become a respected leader in her community. And at 30 years old, it's only just the beginning. Despite her long road to get where she is now, and all that she's learned throughout, it was only recently that she came to fully appreciate the true meaning behind her name. In the Woods is my family's last name. My Lakota name is Iya Mazawi, which is Ironstone Woman. And that was given to me when I was really young. And the woman who gave it to me said that 
I was named that because I would have to be really strong, like iron, like stone through my life. And I was always like, I don't want to have to be that strong, but I understand a lot more now. All right, guys, let's talk about Robinhood. It's an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptos all commission-free. They strive to make financial services work for everyone, not just the wealthy. It's a non-intimidating way for stock market newcomers to invest for the first time with true confidence. It's a simple and intuitive, clear design with data presented in an easy-to-digest way. We put Adam to the test on this one again. And, Adam, what did you experience? Well, I experienced that signing up was really easy, and I don't know anything about stocks, so this is perfect for me because it walks you through it. Makes so it you easy. are that newcomer that we were talking about. I am the newcomer, and I am really nervous about investing, but I feel good about it. Robinhood is giving listeners a free stock, like Apple, Ford, or Sprint, to help build your portfolio. Adam, what do you say? No, that's great. It's better than me just throwing a dart at the board and choosing to throw all my money at it. So, yeah. Okay, guys, sign up at matter.robinhood.com. That's matter, M-A-T-T-E-R dot robinhood.com. All right, guys, I want to tell you about a brand new tasty super coffee drink that I have a feeling you're going to love. It's called Four Sigmatic Mushroom Coffee. This type of coffee is less acidic than normal coffee. That means no stomach burning. Extremely high quality, no pesticides, no mycotoxins. Made with 100% organic Arabica coffee beans. Jitter-free, which is super important. Tastes just like coffee, not like mushrooms. Includes powerful antioxidants and immune-boosting properties. And best of all, I mean best of all, tastes great. I personally like lion's mane during the day and reishi at night. Adam, what do you like? I'm a fan of just the kind of the regular coffee, and my, but my girlfriend is obsessed with the latte. If you're avoiding caffeine, they have caffeine-free flavors, which are also delicious and offer similar benefits to their main mushroom coffee. Doesn't taste like mushrooms, reminder. Everyone from elite athletes to nutritionists, authors, and even professional dancers have found the benefits and taste of the mushroom coffee to be great. Right now, when you head to foursigmatic.com slash WSM, you'll get 15% off your entire order. That's 15% off any order placed on Four Sigmatic's website. Just go to foursigmatic.com slash WSM. That's spelled F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C dot com slash WSM. Overcoming adversity, which is what resilience is about, becomes necessary because there's some reason, some purpose, some goal for doing so. With basketball, one thing that it provided is that gateway out. That's 18-year-old William Brown Otter Jr., who grew up on the Standing Rock Reservation. And when I say gateway out, if you're dealing with like family trauma, drug abuse, things like that, because it helped me with both of those because I got both. It helped me cope with my anger, cope with who I was, me handling my attitude. Like, I spent most of my childhood on the courts. Um, Sometimes I'll be there at like 1 o'clock at night, 2 o'clock in the morning. That was my safe place. William was his team's captain, a great player. But even though he was a leader on the court, William's life was trending in the same negative direction as many others on the reservation. I wasn't really respectful 
to my parents. I really didn't like listen. You know, I always got sent to the principal's office for fighting. And the reason for fighting is because I got picked on a lot because I was short. I got bullied a lot. I kind of took all that anger into like negativity and into the wrong path. And so I look look at myself back then and it it like kind of not scares me in a bad way, but like, wow. Do you worry you would have been at risk at some of these kind of yes. uh, larger problems going on in your community? Drugs, alcohol, yes. that kind of stuff? Yes. In 2016, construction started on the Dakota Access Pipeline, which would run straight through their reservation, threatening their sacred and sovereign land. The youth of Standing Rock were jolted into action. And suddenly, all the skills that William had developed as a leader on the basketball court were put into action off of it. It all started one day when his sister told him they were going for a run. I was just sitting at home on the couch eating. She comes in and, and she said, um, we're running to bring awareness. I was like, awareness to what? She said, there's a pipeline. It's called the Dakota Access Pipeline, and it's going to go under the Missouri River. And I was like, it's going to go under our water. I was like, so what happens if like it leaks and usually stuff like comes up? And I said, what if it like comes in our water? She's like, that's exactly the point why we're running. And I was like, um, okay, we've been going, though. And she said, um, Omaha, Nebraska. And I'm like, wait, we're running to Omaha, Nebraska? She said, yeah. I'm like, oh, wait, what? And I'm like, wow. Um, I'm, like, already doubting myself. I'm like, I cannot do this. I can't. It's, it's Omaha, Nebraska. You know, I'm in South Dakota. Come on now. Even with his doubt, William still decided to run. The distance from Standing Rock Reservation to Omaha is more than 500 miles, and it rained almost every day for the weeks they ran. Along the way, William would stop at other reservations, spend the night, and talk with young members of other tribes. Where we were going to stay was inside the road and the ditches. Um, We had tents with us. That was our main plan of um, where we were going to sleep. It just, like, really worked out because every time we stopped in a reservation, they offered us a place to stay. They had meals ready for us, and we didn't contact them. They already knew that we were coming. I got to see um, different reservations um, with different youth that had the same mindset as me. Um, They had the same ideas, but also had the same problems. They were going through the same struggle, even when I thought it was just, you know, our people that went through it. So then I got to understand that, you know, I ain't the only one out here. There's more that are struggling. There's more that need need a voice, that need someone to listen to them. After two weeks, the tired but inspired group of young runners reached their final destination. That last day when we got to Omaha, Nebraska, right when we got in, when we turned around that corner, all of us started war hooping and all the girls started leaving. It was an unforgettable moment. It was the most truly blessing moment I could ever experience. Just that little moment in time helped me believe in me more, on who I was. And that's when I first started getting more politically involved. The run began William's transformation from at-risk youth to community leader. He was elected to lead the Standing Rock Youth Council and was active throughout the protests. Although that pipeline is a bad thing, but I'm also grateful that it came because it also unified us as people. 
it helped me become a better person, become stronger, more resilient. Though the protests ultimately didn't stop the pipeline from being built, the event changed the course of his life and the lives of many Native youth by showing them the power of advocacy, engagement, and collective action. And that even though they were young, they didn't have to sit on the sidelines. Their voices mattered. William is now a freshman at college, playing basketball and continuing to be a leader on and off the court, pursuing a career in politics and dedicated to bringing positive change back to his community. To Harvard Medical School professor Dr. Joseph Gaughan, William exemplifies how engagement, education, and empowerment through experiences like the Standing Rock protests can help Native youth reimagine their own potential. Standing Rock being one particular instance, a historical moment, we don't have a Standing Rock every year or every 10 years even. So the issue then becomes, how do we, in general, uh, make many more kinds of opportunities and possibilities available for Native youth to engage, to sample, to try out and see if that's something that lights their fire, sparks an interest, or pulls them into a lifetime of energy and ambition and excitement and enjoyment, because, of course, that's what makes life worth living. Which brings us back to Sadie in the Woods. You know, I could have been dead. I could have killed myself, and there would be no girl from Pine Ridge that went to Duke. Instead, I chose to survive, and I realized I could make so much more out of my life. And part of her choice to survive involved a conscious decision not to allow herself to feel like a victim, to take ownership of her life and the trauma she'd suffered during it. The fact that you've had horrific things happen in your past does not determine what you make of them or how you discuss and describe them. Lots of people are victims of assault, violence, or oppression. But that doesn't mean they embrace or adopt identities of victimry. Years after sending the man who had sexually abused her to prison, after physically fighting him in public, Sadie forgave him. I was still for very many years angry about it and sad about it. And as I got older, I I saw him beat down, broken, and even in a wheelchair. I learned later on that he was sexually abused by a, a coach at his school as a young boy, and that that coach had abused maybe 15 other children. And many times I've learned later on that victims become perpetrators. As I started to, to find healing and to speak to people about it and to reach out for help and to pray about it, I, I learned a really deep sense of forgiveness. And when I let my anger and my sadness go, I found a healing that, that I didn't have before and I was able to, to reach out to other women and to help them. Then there was her father, Byron in the Woods who spent much of Sadie's life in and out of prison as he struggled with alcoholism. You might think that Sadie resents her father. She doesn't. She couldn't. Not after she really got to know him. I was angry when I was a young kid about his drinking, but as I got older and I became a parent, I started to understand. 
Like his daughter, Byron loved basketball. He was a tremendous basketball player, a legend. And growing up, Sadie was proud to call him her father. People come from all over Indian country to shake my hand when they find out that he was my dad and tell me these stories about, you know, how he could shoot from half court and he scored 79 points a game, even before the three-point line. And after he was, even as an old man, he was still hitting threes like, they would say, better than Steph Curry, better than Michael Jordan and all these things. And, and I was like a little bit nervous of whether or not I could live up to that. And he was very military, you know. If you want to play basketball, you got to be completely 100, 110% on both sides of court. Your body's got to be 100%. It's got to be solid. And he would flex. And he's like, show me your muscle. And I was real little and skinny. And I'd, you know, really flex. And, and no matter what, he was out like, oh, wow, check that out. And he was my number one fan all, all the time, no matter what. Byron wasn't defined by his addiction, his flaws. Not to Sadie, at least. To her, he was larger than life. He would be this wonderful dad who you know, he would make homemade noodles with me and and take us to the park and I thought he was Superman he could throw a baseball into the air and make it disappear and my little friends would come over and we would watch him do all these really cool athletic things often though after they were done playing for the day Byron would drink he just had this Dr. Jekyll Mr. Hyde thing when he drank alcohol it started when she was two years old when her older half-sister, Alita, became sick. She ended up getting leukemia, and she died when she was 10 years old, and I was 2 years old. I mean, he raised her since she was a little girl and went through with everything with her, watched her go through chemotherapy, and she had to be paralyzed, and it just took a really super heavy toll on him. When she passed away, something inside him just broke, and... He started to drink every single day. His heart was just so broken that he just found that instant comfort that really was just a poison. He would start crying and, and he would start drinking and he would he would always cry and pray in Lakota and sing in Lakota. And when I was little, I didn't understand what he was saying in the language. But as I got older, he was praying and begging for strength and for mercy. Sadly, Byron passed away several years ago. But before he died, he had managed to get sober. He started to heal. That was some of the best times of my life, to see him like that, to see him healed and to see him, you know, hoping for something better. And it just happened that he, he found peace and then he, he passed away. And you know, sometimes it's hard to be proud of yourself, but when I thought about how he saw me and his through his eyes, I it gave me a lot of strength and a lot of hope and a lot of belief in my own ability. And I, I would call him while I was at Duke and, and say, I'm having such a hard time. And he'd be like, dedicate three hours per class, per week. Start that way. And if you need more time, you add another hour per week, if that's what you have to do. But if you do that, Right now, then you'll graduate. You will. I know you will. No matter what, don't give up. Before he passed, her dad had made the 30-hour drive from South Dakota to North Carolina to attend Sadie's graduation from Duke. As she walked across the stage to get her diploma, looking out over the thousands in attendance, Sadie started searching the crowd for her father. 
I was nervous and I'm, I couldn't believe I was graduating and I was with my friends and their families were cheering and really loud and I didn't know where my family was sitting and I was walking with you know thousands of graduates and I look and the first person I see was my dad and he he was just so proud and smiling so big with his hand in the air doing you know the, the power sign some people it's the power of the people but for us it's kind of like strength or resiliency no matter what no I think no matter how old I get or what I go through in life if I think of the image of my dad at my graduation at Duke I'll, I'll always smile really big from ear to ear and I'll never forget that <laughs> Why Sports Matter is a religion of sports and Cadence 13 production. Adam Schlossman is our producer. Brandon Sneed, our writer. Music is from Michael Kramer. Additional music for this episode from Stuart James. Chris Basil and Rich Berner are editors and Kevin Richter, our engineer. Amit Sankaran is the executive producer. Luciano Del Villar and Joe Levin are associate producers. Special thanks to Chris Corcoran, Rich Cook, Matt Havia, Sean Cherry, Giselle Peretz, Eric LeDrew, Kerry Nelson, and Parker Reese. Subscribe to Why Sports Matter on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode and know some friends that may enjoy it as well, please share it with them. And we'd be very grateful for a positive rating and review. Thanks for listening. See you next week.